Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect, there are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, American, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Cisco. Modern modernization today has the products you need to modernize your workplace, like Wi-Fi booster crystals. Let their metaphysical powers enhance connectivity and spiritually awaken your Internet of Things. At CDW, we get crystals won't modernize your network. You need Cisco Catalyst access points that are Wi-Fi 6 compatible and can help you improve reliability, increase capacity, and reduce latency. Cisco and IT orchestration by CDW. People who get it. Find out more at cdw.com slash Cisco. Hey, science fans. One thing we don't get to talk about enough on this show is environmental concerns, ecology, resources, that sort of thing. I wish we we had more on, on this topic on the show Fortunately, I found a new podcast that I believe you guys will enjoy called Waterline. Waterline podcast is everything related to water, uh, how to make sustainable irrigation, can water bring peace, how do you uh, keep water clean and, and safe, and how much money does does our current water system cost in the U.S., what changes can we make and how we use water. I just listened to a fantastic episode called Water in Peace, Hydropolitics. It was all about um, the many different conflicts over different regions of water. We've drawn all of these arbitrary lines for our kind of political regions. And one thing that we didn't really factor in when doing that was water sources. So now there's all of these uncomfortable, to say the least, conflicts uh, where all of these areas overlap over water sources. Fantastic episode. The Waterline Podcast is an initiative of Israel New Tech, a part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and industry so check it out for everything you need to know about the economics political social behavioral technological and environmental aspects of water search for waterline podcast on itunes or in your android podcast app welcome to here we are everybody i am your host comedian shane moss i have dates in australia coming up i'm in melbourne October 19th through 21st and Sydney on October 28th. We may be adding some other shows if there is enough of a response going into this. So please spread the word to anyone you may know on that side of the planet. Uh, Two of my favorite cities in the world. Hope to see people there. And also, I hope you are listening to this on the Laughable app. Make sure and check it out, especially if you have iPhone. It is available now. And subscribe to me, Shane Moss. Know when I am a guest on other podcasts. My co-host this week is Ed Hagen. I'm a professor of anthropology at Washington State University. And I specialize in biological anthropology and specifically evolutionary medicine, evolutionary approaches to topics that have traditionally been researched by doctors and other medical researchers. Um, and I have a special interest in in what have traditionally been 
termed mental health issues like depression, but um, have recently started focusing on drug use and drug addiction from an evolutionary perspective. And um, as with some of my other work, I think an evolutionary perspective on these problems can really revise the way we think about them in, in rather profound ways. Yeah, I think this is going to be a very eye-opening, unique take on uh, cigarette and nicotine use and looking at it in a way that you don't hear about very often from an evolutionary point of view. So um, enjoy. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Okay, Ed. Well, thanks for coming back on the show. Last time we talked about depression. Yeah. This time we're going to maybe lighten the mood. I don't know. Drug talk can be pretty depressing too. We'll see, we'll see what happens. So I actually didn't know this area of your research when we met some year or two ago. Can you introduce a little bit of this aspect of your research? I want to get into how humans have evolved alongside plants. Right. So... I got into this um, actually in grad school back in the late 1990s when a fellow graduate student of mine, Roger Sullivan, came up to me and started babbling about drugs. And I'm always intrigued when, when uh, somebody who's clearly very smart isn't making any sense whatsoever. <laughs> There's One of us is... is, uh, is oh, is, you and I would get along fantastically <laughs> well. I just uh, and so Roger was uh, gave me one of those experiences where... Uh, Here's this really smart guy uh, saying things that, that don't seem to make any sense. Um, so I thought I got to talk to this guy. And we, we began a long collaboration at that point, thinking about drugs from an evolutionary perspective. And the standard story back then and still today is that humans use drugs because they're pleasurable. They make us feel good. But this is an evolutionary novelty. We didn't evolve with cigarettes or bottles of wine or uh, kegs of beer. And so these drugs hijack our brains, they hijack our reward centers, and um, we end up using them and sometimes becoming addicted to them. And Roger had a, a very different perspective that these things are plant toxins, by and large, um, with the exception of alcohol. And so he and I then started to work out what are the implications for um, human attraction to drugs, if instead of thinking them as evolutionarily novel hijackers of our nervous systems, if we instead think about them in terms of their origins as plant defensive chemicals, and we can talk quite a bit about what that means, but nicotine is our favorite example, and tobacco plants are producing nicotine um, not to reward or hijack humans into consuming Tobacco, in fact, tobacco evolved nicotine for precisely the opposite reason, which is to deter herbivores from eating the tobacco plant. So it's actually nicotine is a very deadly neurotoxin. It can kill you within minutes. Um, people die every year from nicotine poisoning, not typically from cigarettes, but instead from nicotine insecticides. Because yes, that's what nicotine is. It's an insecticide. And it's actually uh, sold commercially as an insecticide. Um, and it's an extremely effective insecticide, but also an extremely dangerous toxin for humans. Let's just stop you for a second. Sure. So, so some of the idea is is that these things seemingly are, are 
humans are paying an incredible cost for these things in in terms of their health and how is this benefiting people reproductively or um or increasing their survival in any way yeah so what the heck is that's exactly our question um and it actually that we all know that smoking is bad for you but it turns out the bad part of smoking is not the nicotine Mm -hmm. nicotine is kind of generally considered pretty safe. That's why nicotine patches and nicotine gum are common treatments for smoking addiction. Uh, We get people off the cigarettes and onto a nicotine patch or nicotine gum where they're basically getting just pure nicotine. And it turns out that the cancers and heart disease that we get from smoking comes from everything else in the tobacco smoke. It's not the nicotine. Right. Um, Isn't nicotine um, potentially a cognitive enhancer? Yeah, and it actually could. um, There actually are quite a few studies now that um, nicotine does seem to improve attention. It's a stimulant. It might improve memory. The the evidence on that is less clear. As I'm promoting nicotine, I'm like, ah, should I even be telling people this? Well, (laughs) as long as you're just... Taking nicotine and not all the other stuff. Um, It's the other stuff in cigarettes and tobacco that are harmful. But they look the coolest. They look the coolest. And that's uh, why when you have yellow teeth and yellow hands. Right. But you have that nice nice stream of smoke coming out. Um, (laughs) So even though nicotine is a deadly neurotoxin, that, that kind of acute toxicity is not what most health um, researchers are worried about because um, that's not what's going to give you cancer uh, 20, 30, 40 years from now or heart disease. Um, and yet strict blood vessels or something like that, but probably pretty. That's yeah. Much. All of the uh, toxic effects of nicotine occur within a few minutes um, or a few, you know, on the order of an hour. And we actually tolerate them quite well. But what Roger and I realized is, um, or what we wanted to start explore is what about this acute toxicity, this, this toxicity of nicotine that hits you within minutes. Um, what that should predict is we don't use this stuff at all. That's why nicotine evolved. It wouldn't, nicotine wouldn't exist on the planet if it weren't very, very effective at deterring herbivores, including humans from consuming, uh, the tobacco plant. Um, and, your body actually recognizes nicotine as an acute toxin. It tastes bitter. It makes you sick to your stomach. It makes you throw up. The first time most of us uh, tried smoking or chewing tobacco, we most of us probably got pretty sick. Um, and you might think that should be enough. Once you get sick, uh, usually when I get uh, food poisoning at some restaurant, I don't go back there anytime soon. Um, those kinds of cues are usually quite effective at preventing the consumption of nicotine containing um, plants. So that then does leave us what we call the paradox of drug reward. Why is it that these acute toxins that are easily recognized by your body as toxic, why do we use them anyway? Why do we persist after getting sometimes violently ill and then continue to try and take them? And we actually don't have a solid, we have a number of ideas about that. That gets back to your question about what might the benefits be of could there be some evolutionary benefit for using plant drugs that outweighs all these costs of plant toxicity. And one idea we have, and this is the main one we've been focusing on for the past several years is that um, these drugs are bad for us, but they're worse for our parasites. 
So as I mentioned, nicotine is a really effective insecticide. Uh, it kills exactly the kinds of things that also want to eat us. Um, ticks, mosquitoes, fleas, uh, intestinal worms. Uh, nicotine is really, really good at killing those things. So could there have been selection for humans to actually be attracted to toxic substances as a form of medication? Um, and it's not something that we necessarily be conscious of, but um, it could be, it's, you know, fighting parasites is hard. And if we actually look at commercial drugs today, about half of them are, guess what, inspired by plant toxins. So hmm. um, if you, you know, aspirin is a plant, <laughs> is a plant toxin and, and um, antibiotics are actually toxins that are produced by other organisms, but again, for this deterrent effect. I'm thinking of cigarettes now as a as a bug repellent. Exactly. I mean, this this could potentially have an immediate effect if you're in an environment surrounded by. I mean, I grew up in Wisconsin in the summer days. As you're just surrounded by mosquitoes, anything at all that would diminish mosquito bites in any little way would probably be Very, somewhat noticeable. Exactly, and so tobacco smoke uh, might deter um, things like mosquitoes and fleas. And if your blood is got high levels of nicotine in it, mm. um, that might, uh, as long as you can tolerate it pretty well, um, it's going to be a balancing act. Um, what, you know, what's the dose that is, that is fascinating. Uh, doesn't kill you, but kills your pathogens and your parasites. And so that's, one hypothesis that we think is a pretty strong hypothesis that humans, we might have evolved a taste for drugs as a form of self-medication against parasites. Um, and so we don't have proof of that. It's very speculative at this point. I love speculating, by yeah. the way, wildly, <laughs> as wildly as yeah, possible. Yeah, so there's our wild speculation, but we do have some evidence uh, in favor of it. So what we had to find as a population that uses a lot of tobacco and at the same time, also has a lot of parasites. So we went to the Central African Republic, um, and we're working with um, Aka pygmies, who are hunter-gatherers that live in the rainforest. And these guys love tobacco. And it turns out we discovered that about 95, almost 100% of the men use tobacco on a daily basis. And um, because they don't have access to Western medicine, um, they have a lot of intestinal worms. And so we started just doing some studies. Are there any relationships between folks' tobacco use and worms where we predicted that the folks that maybe were using the most tobacco would have the fewest worms? And that's exactly what we found. There is a negative wow. correl correlation. Now, that's correlation. It's not causation. Yeah. Uh, all we can say is these guys smoke a lot of tobacco and they tend to have the fewest worms case closed case closed <laughs> where's my nobel prize um so we do have some preliminary evidence for it and we we did some other stuff that that we where we could show or at least indicate that um if we treated everybody for worms then the folks who continued smoking over the next year the most were reinfected the least so it also seems to be kind of protective against reinfection from worms and these guys also smoke a lot of cannabis, and we found the same effects for cannabis that um, it turns out there's something in cannabis, we don't know what, that is also deadly for worms. And um, the heaviest cannabis users also had the fewest worms and were also protected from reinfection from worms. And these guys often, um, about 70% of the guys in our population also smoke cannabis. So m most of them are smoking both tobacco and cannabis, so it's a little hard to tease apart 
Are we seeing effects of nicotine? Are we seeing the effects of cannabis? Or maybe something else they're taking that we don't even didn't measure and don't even know. So that's why I have to emphasize correlation here, not causation. Um, these guys are obviously eating a lot of wild plants and a lot of stuff. Um, and maybe there's some confound, as we call it, between tobacco use and consuming some other plant. Can you test this on rats? So you could test it on rats. Um, we actually know that nicotine does kill worms. So there's not really any question about that. There's actually a nice study. Um, I think it's in sheep in Pakistan. If you're a rural farmer in a low-income country, you might not be able to afford commercial anti-worm medicines for all your livestock. But you can put nicotine patches on. Well, you could put nicotine patches or actually what these guys do is they take big bundles of, of tobacco and soak it in water. Really? And, and then they give their sheep um, and goats um, just a big glass of, of tobacco infused uh, water and that actually deworms them quite quite effectively not Do as they good get as any better at playing baseball <laughs> yeah, <when> they... <laughs> right exactly yeah uh, they're spitting their their uh, their chewing tobacco there um, so we know nicotine and actually um, before the invention of commercial anti-worm medicines uh, up until about the 1950s um, um, even in the US farmers regularly dewormed their livestock with nicotine. And the only reason they stopped is um, nicotine was really good at killing the worms, but it also killed quite a few of the, of the livestock because oh. it's, it's a really deadly toxin, as I mentioned. So these new commercial medicines um, kill the worms without killing the sheep and the goats and the cattle. And interestingly, some of the new medicines basically have the same physiological effects as nicotine. They attack the same neural receptors um, as nicotine does. And so in some sense, these modern anti-worm medicines are, are sort of um, nicotine analogs um, that just happen to be not quite as deadly for vertebrates as they are for the invertebrate worms. So we really, we know that nicotine kills worms. And the only question mark was by smoking, are you getting enough nicotine in your system to actually make a difference? And what we see is that it looks like, yes, that smoking does um, give you enough nicotine on a daily basis to have some negative impact on your on your worm burden. Hmm. Well, I want to talk a little bit about this uh, the acute toxicity because I don't have I don't see that as as much of a deterrent, or rather, I should say, I can see an a psychological workaround for for that as a deterrent because if you have so. One of my good friends, Peter McGraw, who wrote this book, Humor Code, and his his thing, a joke on paper, why it works, is this this Venn diagram of, of, a, of a benign violation. So you have something that's either uh, like a joke about your grandfather is maybe not enough, is maybe too boring. A joke about sex is maybe too too much of a violation, too dirty for you. But a joke about a grandfather's erection or something might be silly. And everyone's everyone's uh, subjective in how they view where, where that Venn diagram reaches for them. I think that's a Ray Romano joke. <laughs> on grandfathers with erections. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm pretty sure that's probably where he got it from and used that example. So the idea is is that if I, because I remember my first cigarettes and I remember them making me feel woozy or like what, I remember going through a convenience store and having that buzz. Now, if you didn't know what that buzz, if you just, if someone just like 
um, injected you with something or put a little sticker on you and you felt this buzz out of nowhere without knowing where it came from, it would be horrifying. But because you are used to living in this environment where you've seen people ha- ha- smoke these cigarettes and survive, then it seems like, okay, this is a little bit of a violation here, but this is seemingly okay. The kind of like farts are funny or belches are funny. These are things that could potentially be signs of something going wrong, but we know from experience that it'll be okay. Alcohol's kind of the same way. Like a hangover should be like, a, if you just had a hangover out of nowhere without drinking, you would want to go to the hospital. But if you have one because of alcohol, you know from experience that like, oh, this will be okay. And so that psychologically you can kind of withstand some of those acute deterrents if there is some evolved long-term thing. Does any of that make any sense? Absolutely. And that's actually central to our story because we think we call that cultural transmission. Yes. Um, we're, we're using the stuff that we see um, our parents or other adults in our populations using. And that's a really critical piece of information that, if they're using it and surviving, mm-hmm. um, then I can probably use that same stuff and survive. So absolutely, we think that's absolutely key um, to the whole story. It still does, in our view, leave the paradox of drug reward. These tobacco is is bitter and has all these negative. Tastes horrible. Tastes the first horrible. Time you're doing tastes it. horrible. Uh, and so it really still is a puzzle. What about like a, a- why? Why use it at all? Well, what about, I mean, drug use is predominantly, um, or or at least drug abuse is predominantly a male thing. Males tend to compete more and want to show how tough they are and how much they can endure. You know, the the, uh, polar bear challenge or whatever tough thing that they can do where they're putting themselves in harm's way to show that they can overcome them. Is is that something that's happening when people are lining up for shots at a bar or when uh, these classic movie heroes are smoking a cigarette? Like, look how strong this guy is in spite of doing something that's killing his respiratory system. So uh, we call that the costly signaling hypothesis, and we do think that's a really uh, good hypothesis as well. And I can kind of lay out. So sure. with the acapigmies... Um, when we started studying them, we found, we immediately noticed something really interesting is that although close to 100% of the adult men were smoking, close to 0% of the women mm. were smoking. A huge sex difference. It's, it's the biggest sex difference in, in tobacco use, I think, that's ever been recorded in any population. Um, and if we look around the world, we see that in almost every population, men use more tobacco than women, but in the ACA, it was incredibly stark where 100% of the men. So in our in the US, it might be you know 15 to 20% of the men smoke, and then let's say 20% of the men and 15% of the women. So we have kind of much smaller numbers and smaller differences. Um, but in the ACA, we have this massive difference. And we actually, even women that claim that they smoke, we took saliva samples, went and tested it. And there was no trace of nicotine in their system. So it was, it was even a more dramatic. The only women that smoked were um, post-menopause. They were the older mm-hmm. women. And when we talked to the women, why aren't you smoking? Um, one of the reasons that many of them said is it's bad for the baby. Um, what's different about the ACA compared to 
uh, us in the United States and other high-income countries is they don't have birth control. So they're what we call a natural fertility population. Women get pregnant around 18, and then they're having a kid every two, three, four years. Always pregnant or nursing. They're always pregnant or nursing. And so our hypothesis, and when we began looking at other populations around the world, we saw a really clear pattern that populations in which women um, uh, have high fertility, where they get pregnant early and have lots of kids, smoking female smoking rates were really low, even if male smoking rates were even higher than we see in the U.S. Um, and so the reason would be that um, when you do get pregnant, you um, often, even women smokers, when they get pregnant, have new sensory aversions to tobacco smoke. And so many of them stop smoking um, during pregnancy, not only because their doctor tells them to, but because they find cigarettes newly aversive. And so female physiology seems to be very sensitive to these plant toxins, especially during pregnancy. And the real probable reason is, is that these are extremely dangerous for fetal development, um, that you could either cause an abortion or miscarriage um, and um, or some kind of developmental problem with the fetus. So women appear to um, have a lot of dietary aversions that seem to be aimed at eliminating unnecessary toxins from their diet in order to protect the fetus. And so um, the low smoking rates we see in females in general, and also especially in these populations with high fertility, seem to be a way to what we call the fetal protection hypothesis. Um, when we turn to the males then, we don't see that. We see um, even in countries with, with pretty high uh, fertility rates, we can often still see really high male use of tobacco because obviously males don't have to worry about um, harm to the fetus in the same way that, that women would. As far as the costly signaling goes, um, how does that play into this? Turns out there's another huge group of people that don't smoke cigarettes at all, and that's kids. Um, we don't see any tobacco use in kids prior to about the age of 10, and that's true in every population in which it's been studied, including if we drug test them and check, are they sneaking cigarettes? Uh, if they are, they're not doing it very often. Um, it's it's a really, and again, the reason would be the same exact reason that we think is going on with women, that the same toxins that might disrupt development of the fetus could also disrupt development of a growing child. And we also see that kids are really toxin averse. They don't like, they won't eat their vegetables. Uh, they don't like green leafy vegetables. They don't like bitter foods. They don't like spicy foods. They seem to be really toxin averse in the same way that pregnant women are probably for the exact same reasons. And so that toxin aversion seems to prevent women, especially women in high fertility populations from taking up tobacco. And it really prevents kids from taking up tobacco. What we then see in adolescence is this really dramatic transition to drug use, um, tobacco use, marijuana use, alcohol use. Um, and it actually happens in boys and girls um, right around that time. And then what we see is that when women enter the reproductive years, their drug use typically goes down in their, in their early 20s, uh, whereas male use kind of stays steady. So what's going on? What, why is there this really dramatic transition to drug use, tobacco use, or other use in adolescence? And part of the reason is now your brain is almost fully developed, not completely. So the cost or danger of it is much less. So now you can say, hey, dad is, is smoking, and I'm a 15 or 16-year-old, and I want to be now. So what could be the costly signaling idea? And the first guy to put this idea out there was actually 
um, Jared Diamond. Um, he has a whole chapter on it in his book, and he doesn't really develop the hypothesis in too much detail, but he he puts out for it exactly what you just said a few minutes ago, that um, these things are dangerous toxins. I can show how tough I am um, by very conspicuously getting really drunk or um, using a lot of dangerous drugs. Yeah, I might not look it, but I am, according to my drug use, <laughs> the toughest man alive. <laughs> right. right. Well, you're maybe you're signaling to somebody. <laughs> uh, how many kids do you have? Um, well, birth control. Yeah, birth control. Um, so uh, Jared Diamond's idea was exactly what you said. Um, and we've been now kind of trying to refine his idea. And the way that we're refining this kind of costly signaling idea is we know that kids aren't using drugs at all and probably for these good reasons to avoid uh, disrupted development. I remember so, it seeming completely insane to me, the idea like before puberty, the, why would so, why do adults smoke cigarettes? It smells awful. Why do they drink and slur their words? It's, it's confusing. It's confusing. It's stupid. Um, I don't have to ever worry about my young daughters sneaking anything out of the liquor cabinet because they just they show no interest on the contrary. Yeah, they enjoy that it, for a few years. Right. So I'm enjoying that <laughs> until you know we get to age you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, we're going to yeah. see a dramatic transition in that in both uh, boys and girls. Um, what that means is that drug use is a honest signal of developmental maturity. Um, at least this would be one in because um, you know if you're if you're still developing and it, it could be your brain mm. is still developing or even maybe some of your other organs because nicotine is a neurotoxin. It's going to disrupt all kinds of development uh, in all kinds of tissues, and it does. We know this from rat studies. So. You don't need to worry about stunting your growth if you're done growing. You don't need to worry about stunting your growth if you're done growing. Now, think about a hunter-gatherer population. This is a little bit counterintuitive for us in the West where everybody has a birthday every year and we track our ages. Many populations around the world, including most probably our, our uh, hunter-gatherer ancestors, they don't track age. So if I ask an Aka how old he is or she is, they have no idea. Um, and they don't really know how old their kids are. Um, and nobody really knows how old anybody is. So imagine you're kind of going into the mating market um, and you're having to decide who to mate with, especially if you're a female looking at a male. You want to mate with somebody who's a mature adult, completely developed. Um, You don't want to mate with a juvenile. And we see this in many, many species, not just humans, that females typically avoid juvenile males because those matings are unlikely to be successful for a number of reasons. Um, But if you don't know the guy's age... uh, it's possible that you might actually make a mistake and end up mating with someone who is really not yet an adult, doesn't have the hunting skills, um, isn't doesn't have you know complete cognitive development or development of other tissues. Might even be low fertility. Who knows? He just he's a young guy with a beard and gets gets to get booze for all his friends at the drugstore. Right. Exactly. That. So if you smoke cigarettes or use any other drug conspicuously. That means you've passed that point where you, it's now safe for you to do that. It's an honest cue uh, that you are now an adult. And so could it that one idea is that this conspicuous drug use that we see, especially in males um, in middle to late adolescence, is, is basically showing off, I'm a grown-up now. I'm an adult. Um, not only should women take me seriously as an adult, as a potential mate, but other male partners 
should actually now accept me as, as an adult male, not a, a, a teenage boy. And so when I worked with the Anamama, who are a um, tribe of Native South Americans, um, they grow a lot of tobacco, use a lot of tobacco as well. And it was really striking that the the kind of young to middle eight teenage boys would really try and push to use tobacco um, to um, kind of show off that they are, in fact, should be taken seriously as adults. Can I ask what the life expectancy in these tribes? Um, yeah, that's a, a little bit of a complicated question because if you if you average over all the individuals that were ever born, it's actually pretty low. But what the reason it's low is because that would include very high rates of child mortality. So um, if you make it to adulthood, um, you know, until let's say age 15 or so, you have a very, very high probability of, of making it to age 60. Um, but at age, at birth, <laughs> you actually have a pretty low probability of making it to age 15 um, because um, in some of these populations, half or even up to two thirds of the kids are gonna die. So all, a lot of the mortality happens at very young ages. Um, but if you make it into uh, adolescence or early adulthood, um, you have a very good chance of making it to age uh, 60. I, I only ask because I'm thinking, um, from an evolved psychological perspective, what what's the rush? Uh, what's what's the rush to reproduce if if you're a male that's going to make it into his sixties potentially? Is it just the sooner the better? Low? That's a great question, and I, I would expect there's going to be. In fact, this is a huge area of research, um, and there's folks here at WSU. My colleague Rob Quinlan uh, works on a an area called life history theory. And it's exactly this question. Uh, what's the rush? And in fact, we think that, um, and based on Rob's work and other folks' work, that some people will be in a rush and some people won't. And so there's going to be variation. And the question is, what is going to explain that variation? And one of the ideas that Rob has worked a lot on is how long do you, exactly what you just asked, how long do you think you're going to live? Um, if you have fairly good reasons to think there's a good risk of dying young as an adult. You're in an unstable environment. You're in an something. unstable environment. Um, there's a lot of violence and warfare as there is with the Anamamo. Um, a lot of the adult men die by violence. Um, or if you're in, in the, in a high income country like ours, if you're, if you're living in a, a neighborhood that's low SES neighborhood or lots of violence and you're in you know, a lot of gang warfare and stuff, um, then you probably do want to mature earlier. Uh, because if you don't uh, and don't reproduce yeah. earlier, you're not going to reproduce yeah. at all. And so you have an accelerated life history. On the other hand, if you're like me and grew up in a super safe, uh, high-income area, and um, then there is no rush. You are going to take a longer time and um, spend more time learning, gaining cultural capital, uh, growing bigger. You're going to be more competitive, and you can afford to put that investment in because there's a very – low chance that you're going to die. You're going to have a high chance of that investment paying off. So yes, you're exactly right that, and that might be, I think, and a lot of people like Rob, I think would say that kind of explains why we, there was the kind of parking lot gang in high school who are the guys out smoking cigarettes um, as freshmen or sophomores. Um, and they always seem to be the kind of tougher characters, often ones that life maybe not is as smooth as it is for right. some of us. Uh, and maybe that's why. Um, that they actually have good reasons to want to accelerate their transition to adulthood. <clears throat>
Um, so what, what age is, uh, what age are these guys dying of cancer and everything like that? Cause that's the other factor. If, if evolution isn't, isn't given an opportunity to weed out this behavior, if cancer's not hitting someone until they're say 50 or 60 and they're kind of on the way down in their, uh, reproductive output. Yeah, it doesn't matter. And so you're absolutely right. These, the negative health consequences or the, the major ones of tobacco probably don't matter from an evolutionary perspective. Um, that might be putting it a little too strongly, but you're right. When you look in the U S for example, and you look at the mortality curves of non-smokers versus smokers, you really can't tell any difference till about age 50. And that's when you can begin to see those curves uh, diverge and the smokers um, are going to now have a higher risk of uh, a noticeably higher risk of death every year compared to the non-smokers. Um, it might be as high as double the risk every year. Um, but that doesn't really show up until that doesn't really make a, 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 a noticeable impact uh, until you're right, until you're in your fifties. Um, and even then, if you're a smoker, you still have a pretty good chance of, of making it to your sixties. So, um, Smoking does erase about 10 years off your life, but it's those last 10 years when you're, you've already reproduced. And so the selection against that is, is pretty limited. Um, and we were interested in this when we were, did our work with the ACA because um, all the men smoke, but do they conceptualize tobacco use as having any negative health consequences? And they do. They, they wouldn't conceptualize that in the same way that we do in terms of cancer and heart disease, but um, it makes you cough. Um, it has other kinds of negative health consequences for them um, that they recognize as a price they pay for using tobacco. Um, and it's it's one that they do have kind of cultural concepts for for thinking about and talking about. And some of them are not so different from the ones that we would use, like you know, heavy coughing or um, res- they wouldn't call it respiratory congestion, but essentially they're they're describing stuff um, problems in the respiratory system. How are the elders viewed in those? Tri- I ask because I I think I had this mentality, and and I know others have. Where I mean, if you tell me why I'm 16 years old, that if I start smoking cigarettes after 50 years old, I'm going to have uh, I'm I'm going to start having problems. I'd be like 50 years old. Well. T- who cares? I gotta live that long anyway, right. and, or, and, or science will figure it out by then. So. And 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 that might be because I had, um, yeah, science might figure it out by then. Was a, was a big <laughs> one too, but that that might be that. Um, yeah, maybe that was part of it. I, I'm just thinking if, if there's cultural differences in in how we look at elder and there's individual differences in how we look at elderly whether we look at them as like slow and feeble or we look at them as wise leaders and right i think there's no question that um in most of these groups at least the ones that i've worked in um many of the elders are are very respected they do have a lot of knowledge a lot of wisdom um but i think you're right that's a major problem that tobacco control efforts face is how do you convince teenager because you if you're going to smoke you're going to transition to smoking as a teenager and if you don't transition by the time you're 20 you probably never will so we've got to take this this group of you know teenagers and convince them to not start smoking 
by warning them about stuff that is unimaginably far in their futures, um, you know, 30, 40, 50 years from now. And um, you're going to have these problems. And there isn't any good solution to that, we think, except we are now using our ideas about female smoking and why. Because what we see in these high-fertility countries, women are not transitioning to smoking. And so just like kids don't smoke, um, it's really dramatic. Uh, the smoking rates in women, in reproductive age women, um, in these populations are really, really low. And public health researchers recognize that this is a huge public health opportunity, that if we can figure out why these women aren't transitioning to smoking, and our ideas are, are haven't even <laughs> hit the mainstream, nobody's even heard of, of, of our ideas, um, so what most people until now until now until this podcast um, that the uh, the standard idea is that it's gender inequality that these countries that have high fertility um, that's not how mainstream public health researchers think about them they think about them in terms of high levels of gender inequality and so women are uh, don't have access to um, money, they don't have access to political power. And so the reason that they don't have access to tobacco is that men control access to tobacco and they're preventing the women who would, under other situations or other conditions like we see in the United States, women would love to have these rewarding substances just as much as men would. Um, and so it's not that women are, are choosing not to use tobacco, but instead that they're prevented from using it. From our perspective, they don't they don't want to use it, and also their mothers and their grandmothers are telling them not to use it because it's not good for the baby. So how could we use that to help prevent this massive transition to smoking in the developing world where tobacco companies are viewing these populations that have, after all, most of the world's population lives in low-income countries or middle-income countries, and those are exactly the countries that have traditionally had high fertility and very low female smoking. So from a tobacco company's perspective, most of the planet, half the planet are these women that don't smoke, and so it's a huge marketing opportunity for them. Um, and what we're suggesting is the reason these women aren't smoking, either consciously or unconsciously, um, or due to various cultural factors are related to the dangers of any kind of toxic plant use for the developing fetus. And those are dangers that don't come when you're 50 or 60. Those are dangers that come when you're 18 or 20 and having your first kids. So at least for women, this would not work for men, but at least for the women, we think there's an opportunity here to um, prevent that transition to smoking. Even when these women stop uh, having kids so early that if we maintain the set of cultural values around reproduction, which is something that's going to occur much earlier in their lives, uh, and basically scare them about that. Yeah. Uh, smoking does have all these huge negative consequences for the baby, but also for your own fertility. Um, it does reduce your ability to even have a kid. So it puts you, if you're a smoker, you're less likely to be able to get pregnant at all. Um, you're more likely to go through early menopause. These are things that are going to be much more immediate and powerful, we think. And we're actually running a study right now to see if that's true. If we can actually, um, and just to put it bluntly, kind of scare these young women more effectively with concerns about their reproductive health, then 
trying to scare them about concerns about their health when they're uh, 50 or 60, because reproductive health is something that's going to matter to them in their late teens and early 20s, um, much more immediate um, and we think hopefully more effective um, at preventing the transitioning to smoking. Well, can't you tell men that um, this uh, that it's inhibiting blood flow and circulation problems, and then and then you'll you'll have more trouble maintaining an erection. Right. We're, as long we're as take I think, your boners away. Right. Uh, <laughs> I think the problem is going to be that, and we see this in the ACA. Um, we asked. Aka, men, would you prefer a wife that smokes or doesn't smoke? 100% of them said they prefer women, a wife that doesn't smoke. Then we flipped it around and asked the women, do you prefer a husband that smokes or doesn't smoke? And almost all the women preferred a husband that smoked. Really? Um, and so we asked why. Um, and um, they have a cultural model of smoking, kind of similar to one you brought up earlier, which is this, it enhances performance. So why do you smoke? It makes me stronger. It makes me a better hunter. Uh, I can climb trees and get honey better. Um, and so women view men who smoke as better potential mates. And if that is, and we, that could easily be true here as well, that as we just talked about a few minutes ago, smoking might enhance your mate value. It makes you look more mature, more capable, rightly or wrongly. And as long as uh, women have that perspective on drug use, it's going to be really hard to convince <laughs> men to to right. not use drugs if they're getting that that kind of mating benefit yeah, from yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, That's cigarette poon. Yeah. Um do they do rapé over there? The the nostril, the 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 snuff basically, but where they Our, one the... of our research assistants did uh tobacco snuff, but that was the only guy I knew that did it. But he was able to get it, so clearly other folks do do it, but in in at least the little villages that we were working in, um nobody use snuff our research assistant was from the city um and he used it um different populations use tobacco in different ways these guys all smoked it in the yanomamo they all chew it they actually make this big kind of chunk of like a cork-sized chunk of tobacco they stick under their lip and just yeah. suck on it all day um snuff is another popular one the the rafe is the one where they have the blowed gun thing that you put in your nostril and yeah. someone else has to shoot it in yeah, for in, you in my group it's called a bene and then oh uh, maybe that's what it's uh, i'm new to it i did it a couple times so it was interesting they're, they're probably different like terms yourself in the head with a shotgun yeah they they have a long bamboo tube and they yeah. pack it full of this um red powder comes from a different couple different sources and then one guy just blows it up <laughs> up your nose and then you're just your head kind of explodes. Your it's, tears it's not, and snot. It's, it's beautiful. Yeah, pouring out. Um, <laughs> and then they do this. It does increase clarity seemingly. I mean, I think a lot of these things have a placebo effect to them as well. Yeah, a bene is actually it wasn't as strong as we thought it was going to be. Uh, if you really want, you know, the it doesn't even come close to LSD in terms of <laughs> right, of right. its potency. Um, but they do It'll a lot of up. it. It'll wake you up. It'll wake you up. Um, and one of my um, undergraduate students didn't. I actually did not do it, but one of my undergrads did it. And um, he was walking around in circles and then in about <laughs> 10 minutes puking his guts out. So there's that toxin, that plant toxin reaction. His, yeah. his body recognized that stuff was was pretty toxic. I liked it, but I'm a lunatic. Right. Uh, um, I, I was just curious if that had a uh, negative uh, effect, it's, uh, uh, taking it. 
as opposed to smoking or chewing if they're i'm sure there's if you're doing it right <laughs> i don't know if anyone's just regularly 20 times a day shooting tobacco i, I don't know maybe with snuff yeah um yeah i don't know it doesn't snuff. matter yeah um what about uh amphetamines and and morphine not not to not to drop those big categories on you as we, we still have a little bit of time here but um i mean these are things that ravage societies but at the same time if you're looking for a survival advantage look to the military military uses morphine and amphetamines yeah and the especially those stimulants tobacco is used a lot in that way the aka kind of mentioned that kind of gives them energy keeps them awake um and obviously amphetamines would be a more potent version of that so performance enhancement we think is another interesting avenue to explore uh, in terms of maybe an evolutionary selection pressure for using drugs is that they often do enhance performance, at least to a certain degree. I think there's a little bit of a technical problem with that explanation because the way these drugs enhance performance is they, they mimic our neurotransmitters. Um, so they're, that's essentially why they're toxic. So nicotine, for example, chemically mimics acetylcholine, which is a natural neurotransmitter that is essential for your brain to talk to your muscles, among other things. Um, and that's why nicotine is such a deadly neurotoxin, is it basically mimics acetylcholine. So it binds to acetylcholine receptors, and that prevents your brain from telling your heart to pump or your lungs to breathe, your diaphragm from moving. So that's actually why nicotine is, is such a deadly toxin, is it basically paralyzes you. Um, so why would we want to use nicotine as a performance enhancer if it's really just mimicking acetylcholine? If that was beneficial somehow, your body should just evolve to produce more acetylcholine. Uh, why go through this convoluted, I got to go out, I got to find some toxic plant, I got to dry it, I got to smoke it. Uh, if that was advantageous in any way in terms of biological fitness, your body should just evolve to adjust your neuro, your balance of neurotransmitters. Um, that's a much easier way for your body to, to get that little boost. And the same with, with opium and, and these things that we have natural opioids. That's why opium is a toxin. That's why it works. It mimics. In fact, that's why these drugs, um, that's how we discovered them. That's, excuse me. That's how we discovered a lot of neurotransmitters and neuroreceptors because we noticed nicotine was binding to these proteins in cells um, what are those cells? Those turn out to be nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. They're called nicotinic because they were discovered due to the fact that a plant toxin, nicotine, bound to them. The opioid receptors, because opium poppy compounds bound to these receptors. So we just cannabis, cannabinoid receptors discovered because cannabis, again, the THC toxin is binding to something. And that tells us there's got to be some endogenous neurotransmitter that evolved to bind to those receptors, endogenous cannabinoids, as we call them, endogenous opioid, uh, opioids, um, acetylcholine, dopamine, other ones. So um, I think the performance enhancement story is a little tricky to make that work in an evolutionary sense. One way that because these drugs are neurotransmitter analogs, if you had some problem, a neurotransmitter deficit, you might try it. It's possible that these drugs might help you overcome that. Um, we see that folks that have problems that seem to be rooted in some kind of neurological problem, like schizophrenia, they're huge drug users. And 
it's quite clear that they're using the, these drugs to treat their symptoms. So could that be, you know, schizophrenia is not a new thing. Brain injuries are not a new thing. Brain, some kind of developmental problem. So could it be if you, for whatever reason, have some nervous system problem uh, that we evolved to seek out drugs to treat that problem? Um, by basically kind of supplementing the neurotransmitters that we might be missing or some functionality that we can kind of roughly approximate by taking a cocktail of drugs to overcome some problem in the nervous system related to neurotransmitter uh, levels or something like that. So we think that's another way that these drugs might be medicines, really. And so really what, when we look at the heavy drug use of folks with schizophrenia, we should really not think of it as drug use, but as, and maybe um, self-medication, which a lot of folks already do look at it that way. Most schizophrenics smoke cigarettes, right? Yeah, most of them use a lot of drugs, including tobacco. Um, and when you look at it, often their their patterns of drug use actually match their symptom patterns. So it there does seem to be like they actually are deliberately selecting certain compounds, maybe not consciously or maybe consciously, to help address some of the um psychological and psychiatric symptoms that they're experiencing. And it makes sense. And we don't see any reason why that couldn't be an evolutionary uh, motivation to do that, to kind of seek out compounds that actually help you overcome various cognitive deficits that you might have. Hmm. I mean, uh, ADHD, we give people speed, right. essentially. Right. Um, that's what we're doing with commercial pharmaceuticals. Most of these things are either plant compounds directly or inspired by plant compounds. So most of the commercial medicines, or at least half of them that we use are plant toxins. Um, and the reason plant toxins are so good at being medicines is that plants are evolving these defensive chemicals. The way they work is to manipulate cellular signaling. Plants are finding the chinks in, in your cellular armor deliberately to manipulate it to, to harm the herbivores. But then that means that because those compounds like nicotine and THC and cocaine are so good at manipulating signaling systems that we can then co-opt those compounds to then manipulate deliberately manipulate those systems in ways that might treat some deficit. Um, and there is, there's a huge amount of research going on right now on therapeutic uses of nicotine um, to deal with problems in acetylcholine um, receptor transmission and, and stuff like that. So it makes a lot of sense um, that plant compounds play such a role, uh, a huge role in, in medicine because plants for uh, the last 400 million years or so have been evolving compounds that basically can manipulate every cellular system in our bodies. Our plants are targeting just about everything because the way that our bodies work is this, roughly the same way as the bodies of the things that eat plants work. So if, if that plant evolves some compound that does something in an insect or a worm or some other, or a deer, um, that compound is, is probably going to have similar effects in the human body as well. Are mood stabilizers plant-based? What would you be thinking of here? Like, uh, I don't, I don't know the names of them. Like for bipolar. I mean, lithium is, is not a plant compound, obviously. Oh, yeah. That's a mineral. Right. Right. Um, but it's still something in the environment. That it's you, something in your environment that is, that is that is uh, manipulating cellular mm -hmm. signaling in some way. And so, of course, it doesn't have to be a plant compound, but plants um, have under very strong selection pressures to manipulate 
animal bodies. What's the group of people that you study again? The Aka. The Aka. Do they have like plant spirits in their culture? They, um, they don't, I don't know that they do. I'm not a, a huge expert on their, on their religion. Um, they have kind of a forest spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, they actually have a, a member of their group kind of dresses up in a certain way. And he's actually covered with these plant uh, leaves, um, whether they actually, so they do kind of consider it as a, as the forest and trees and plants. I don't know if they actually have a, a anything like that. I, I'm not a huge expert on their, on their religion. So I couldn't answer that question. Mm. That's okay. Um, I'm also curious about thinking about stages of life. They, they, they aren't marking birthdays. They aren't, they aren't uh, counting ages, but they're still noticing stages of life, you, infant to toddler to kind of walking, getting around, at, and then adolescent. They're, they're kind of, they're, they're, I'm sure there's like coming of age rituals and Absolutely, stuff like that. Absolutely, they do have coming of age rituals. So around that age is when a lot of that's puberty and sexually active, a lot of experimentation happens. Is that... Is it a mistake that the prefrontal cortex is is maturing later on after that, that everything else is kind of fully matured except for this thing that's inhibiting these primal urges has delayed for several years? And, and is, is it because I'm thinking about I, I think I saw something once about how any food that you don't try before the age of three or something like that is going to take you a little more work to get the the taste of because there's kind of this cutoff point at age three, four or five or something like that where where your brain goes, okay, well, whatever our parents experimented with on us, that was okay because our parents gave it to us. I'm anthropomorphizing a lot of psychological mechanisms now but sure. and development. But then might there be something similar happening around that time where puberty all of a sudden something else has switched and you're a different person it's just the same as when you become a mother you're a different person than you were before so so there's these stages of life and at the onset of puberty might this be because this is this fresh stage of life might there be some sort of psychological properties that just make you more experimental in general sexually drug-wise career-wise artistically this this seems like a a lot of people branch out and get into all sorts of new experimenting yeah i mean it's it's clear there's this if we look at sexual behavior and we look at the onset of drug use those curves parallel each other remarkably well um and it's it's a it's a switch-like transition in adolescence and the the points you brought up about diet are exactly this toxin avoidance stuff that we were talking about earlier that if you're if actually if you look at the rates of poisonings by age in the US they're really really high when you're really really young um because you aren't as careful as you should be when you're one or two that's when the highest poisoning rates are um you stick stuff in your mouth you're kind of relying it looks like you're relying on your parents to really limit your access to anything dangerous. And if they don't do that carefully, uh, you do end up poisoning yourself. Then rates of poisoning plummet. And you're right, it's right around age three. And they plummet and they're as low as they're ever going to be around age nine or 10. uh, Because you are now very, very good (laughs) at avoiding anything that you are not 100% sure of. And then starting from age 10, 
poisoning rates skyrocket again. And of course, those are the drug overdoses. Those are the alcohol poisoning, tobacco poisoning, cocaine poisoning that then skyrockets um, into your early 20s, which then in females drops down again. Again, we think this protective effect of motherhood in males, it stays kind of straight. And then interestingly, I still don't quite know how to explain this, but maybe midlife crisis in both males and females around age 40, it spikes again. So these are the divorced. One last hurrah before. The... <laughs> One last hurrah. Or are these the divorced uh, right. get parents now back on the on the club scene? Um, I'm not quite sure what, what, what to explain uh, there. But yeah, something going on. I mean, on. it's certainly another stage of life. It's uh... another stage of life. Um, but in terms of like the prefrontal cortex, you're right. That's the standard story. I'm not a huge fan of this story that, um, I, I have no horse in this race, right? That the prefrontal cortex is, is our executive control center. It, it is the sober, uh, part of our brains that, um, is not fully, uh, developed and therefore we get a little crazy in adolescence. Um, I am not really a big fan of that cool. story um, right. because this is a really important transitionary period. And um, I, that makes all this stuff kind of sound like a little bit of an accident or byproduct. And I would guess there's stronger selection on behaviors at this time. It's so tricky. It's fascinating to figure out those byproducts. What is and what, what is a byproduct? Exactly. What's and, not. Uh, so I'm, I'm not willing to right. immediately concede that these are all kind of byproducts of an underdeveloped uh, prefrontal cortex. Um, okay. Well, uh, to wrap up, uh, what would you like people to take away from this? Um, I would like them to um, consider that... Um, Drug use, human drug use, recreational, what we call recreational drug use, um, is something that we really don't understand in evolutionary terms yet. And uh, it might be that we have an evolved taste or propensity for drugs or propensity to use drugs. Um, these are certainly extremely common behaviors across every – and just about everybody uses drugs. If you don't smoke tobacco, you drink coffee, you eat chocolate – uh, you use some kind of dangerous plant toxin, <laughs> um, almost assuredly. And um, so this must might be very much a part of, of human nature and evolved uh, functional adaptive human behavior. Um, and so when we think about drugs, we really should, we have all of the social norms around drugs, good drugs, bad drugs. Some drugs we classify as foods like coffee, others very much not that way, like cigarettes. Uh, but if we start to think about drug use as, as potentially um, a functional part of human nature, I think we can begin to step back and, you know, what are some of the worst aspects of modern society, the war on drugs um, and the way it differentially falls on minorities and the huge incarceration rates around um, that come from that and the, the huge costs of societies from the war on drugs. Uh, maybe we'll chill out a little bit. Uh, and for some of these drugs, so. um, as we as we're beginning to do in in like Washington and Oregon and many states now, um, and especially the costs on on countries like Mexico um, and elsewhere of the human drug habit, or excuse me, not the human the the U.S. drug habit, just wreaks havoc with these other countries um, in terms of the violence of drug gangs. So the whole war on drugs has just been a, a massive disaster. I mean, and, look at everything everyone's uh, that, that are concerned about that that uh, the the fear that Trump got elected on the things that these small towns are are concerned about bad hombres 
terrorists and inner city youth. Well, what's what's driving uh, what's driving that is the money earned from Drug. illegal drugs. If the and that comes from the war on drugs, because if those weren't illegal, they wouldn't have any. They wouldn't have of any of those problems. So without discounting some of the real problems of drug addiction, um, I think that we haven't really weighed those two enough, and and the moral outrage against drug use has, has really caused huge problems i also think that uh, if if people are kind of finding ways to self-medicate and i'm not saying that that people are doing it right i i know i've made zillions of mistakes that i hope people don't uh don't replicate but um it is when when you have this myriad of diverse issues to potentially self-medicate and then you have one potential drug that you can use right or two potential drugs uh, then then you're using alcohol as some cure-all or tobacco <laughs> or and these tobacco happen to be the worst cure-all. ones right. you know? so yeah if we had a greater variety of of substances to play around with um and maybe some that are don't have these long-term health consequences in the way tobacco especially does um and if we recognize that adolescents um that it's probably maybe part of adolescent human nature to want to experiment with, you know, psychoactive plant compounds, that this is kind of a healthy part of, of being an adult. Um, We can begin to kind of create social institutions and rituals that allow folks to express that side of themselves in a way that is uh, maybe healthier for them and everybody else as well. And so we kind of accept that as part of, of a healthy aspect of human nature rather than something that we need to, to really suppress and drive underground. Um, that might lead us to uh, kind of a healthier, happier society, at least in a few small, small ways. Well, great. Well, thank you for coming back on the show and joining sure, me Sure, my again. pleasure. This my is pleasure. fantastic. And thank you listeners for being such wonderful, thoughtful, inquisitive people. We'll talk to you next week. And the nonprofit this week. Direct Relief. They do a lot of charity work both in the United States and globally. They're very, very efficient at turning your dollars into medical assistance wherever it's needed around the world. Terrific. And as always, you can always go to the herewearepodcast.com website and there are links from there. Pay it forward. Give. Charity. Be wonderful. Thank you. All right, everybody. Speaking of other substances i should have asked for permission really as my podcast though but this has nothing to do with anything any points of view of of uh ed haggins but i haven't plugged this in a while i'm doing the psilocybin retreat in jamaica legal mushrooms in jamaica i actually just quit drinking and smoking cigarettes which is a miracle and i did it through the help of mushrooms that's not to say that it will work for anyone that's the jury is out blah 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 but i am making a whole documentary about um the effectiveness of some of these things and there is nothing worse than cigarettes and so whatever it worked for me maybe it was other things who knows it shouldn't oversell it or whatever but uh worked for me and um and anyway uh, November 26th to December 5th if you go to mycomeditations.com I will be in Jamaica doing not only doing a show at the retreat but participating in the sessions
there's going to be lodging. It's it's all inclusive. You get your meals, your lodging, um, airport pickup. Uh, you get a massage, not from me, and and you're welcome um, from a professional masseuse. And then you'll get guidance um, and from uh, from the people there, and maybe me. You can ask me questions. I'll give you some guidance. Uh, why not? Have you ever been experienced? Well, I have. Um, spaces left. 13 spaces left. I think those are going to go away real soon. Please check out Myco Meditations, M-Y-C-O Meditations.com. And I believe if you mention the Here We Are podcast, you get a little discount as well. But look at the price. But then consider that you're in Jamaica for 10 days and it's all-inclusive and you get all of your accommodations and everything else, too. The price depends on whether you want your own room or a shared room or oceanfront or there, there's different uh, room classes and everything else. So that's something that, uh, that will vary. But anyway, Michael Meditations, don't forget to check out the Laughable app for all of your podcast needs and... This is exciting. On Patreon, I've been I've been playing around with writing some blogs, and I was like, it was never perfect, and I was putting it off. And I thought, what the hell? I'll just start another podcast. And so I've been uh, I've been doing podcasts about um, some some of the ideas that I've been wanting to share, and I've been kind of nervous about sharing, and some of my experiences lately that I know. A lot of people have wanted to hear more about and so this is a way you know when I sometimes go on and on about things in the intros and outros about some of the things going on in my personal life behind the scenes sorry my phone keeps on going off but I'm recording I'm going with it uh, well that is some of the bigger ideas that I have in some of my more intimate experiences and things that I am uh, usually very, very careful with who I share them with. I'm sharing them with Patreon subscribers only. So if you go and follow me on Patreon, you will get to hear my new podcast. Just me talking about, uh, I had an intro about why I'm doing this podcast. Then I had a podcast about, uh, about fear and working towards it. And I've already recorded four podcasts about my ideas and and I'm going to be I'm going to be workshopping my DMT show on the podcast and just going through all of my experiences and I'm really kind of just trying to do something just for me and just really lay it all out on the table so if you want to hear that you can subscribe and whatever you do um, decide to contribute monthly will go toward me getting to spend more time learning and reading for this podcast um i just ordered a bunch of textbooks and i'm excited to get to work with some ideas i've been tinkering with that i think are gonna change the world no big whoop but um yeah i'll so i'll be sharing those first on that podcast before i'm going around asking scientists about them so yeah Check that out if you want. You can always uh, unsubscribe from it if you're not digging it. And I'm I'm really excited about it. It's new. You got to keep on switching things up in life once in a while. Keep things a little bit fresh. And so I'm very excited about this. So you get to hear me excited. 
and I hope you check it out. Those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are my favorite. You really are. Kyle Ayers, I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it, and here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior. Happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL. The 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Scarface, 22 to 45. (laughs) Like he's a television audience demographic? (laughs) Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. <laughs> Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would he even? Why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype, <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish, (laughs) he spots his dear friend, who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. Scarface yells out his signature line. (laughs) Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. Oh, my God.